Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you ask young people, like, what is the most important thing that an adult can do in your life? And they'll tell you, like, oh, just they can listen to me because they feel so often like they're dismissed or being told what to do. When we ask young people to rank institutions on a scale of one to 10, the only thing that gets above a five on trust is nonprofits. They get a 5.5. Everything else is like below the midpoint. And so even that's even 5.5 is not very good. Hey, it's David. And you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey there, we have got a super special guest for you today. Uh, Josh Packard, PhD, is a friend of Let's Grow Leaders, and uh, he led the research team that we partnered with for the research that's the foundation of our last book, Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. And uh, so super exciting to get to talk to Josh today, but we're not going to be talking about Courageous Cultures because after years of leading a variety of business and social research, Josh is now the executive director of Springtide Research Institute, who focuses on young people. And his doctorate's in sociology from Vanderbilt. And I got to give a shout out to my brother-in-law who leads a pulmonary research team at Vanderbilt. Go doors. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, my sister would kill me if I didn't say something there. <laughs> and, uh, and recently, and, and Josh has written so many books, but recently he's authored a, a couple of tremendous works and research reports on the newest generation. Um, one of these is Meaning Making, Eight Values That Drive America's Newest Generation. And then a report, a research report on, uh, I'm going to call it work slash life, because that's mm-hmm. you know how us young folks talk, right? Work slash life, helping Gen Z flourish and find balance. Josh Packard, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure. So listen, I am, uh, there are so many different facets of this to explore because we're talking about the the newest generation that's entering the workforce today and obviously massive implications um, for leaders. And you have such a heart for, for these folks and the work that you and the Institute are doing. But before we do any of that, I want to ask you, um, if you could take us back in your life to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader, what comes up for you? Man, what a good question. I actually think about this moment a lot because um, it's, uh, we are, my wife and I are raising an only child by design. Um, and, it, you know, nobody, most of the time, only children do not want to be only children when they are the age that my son is at 12, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13. It's a burden, not, um, you know, not, not necessarily something that you would wish for. And uh, I've, I've been trying to convince him lately that like, well, look, you know, everybody has something that makes them special and unique. And one of your superpowers is that you're really comfortable being alone. And, and, and that, that means that you never have to worry about being able to say or do the right thing that needs to be done. Because if the consequence is that people are going to ostracize you or whatever, you're good with that. Um, and, uh, and no, nobody wants to be disliked, but I just mean like, you don't, you know, you're okay being in your own skin. And, and I remember very clearly once when I was in middle school, this kid was just getting picked on mercilessly 
I did not know him, didn't particularly want to be friends with him at all, was, did not become friends with him, but just couldn't take it anymore. And, and, and sort of stepped in the middle of that situation over the course of a, I don't know, a week or two weeks and, and said, look, you know, this can't, this can't keep happening. You know, and there was, as middle school boys tend to do, it turned less verbal and more physical at times. Um, then, you know, cost me, cost me some friends um, or cost me some young, you know, some peers that might have been friendly. Acquaintances. Me. I don't, yeah. I don't know that you call them friends. Um, and I just, you know, that has always been like, not maybe it's a mark of leadership, but it's all, it, it really informs like a lot of my care and concern is just always about, you know, who's, who's being overlooked or sometimes intentionally excluded and uh, drove me into this in some ways that concern is like, you can draw a through line right from, from that feeling all the way up to today. Uh, and that is not surprising, Josh. I ask every guest that same question and that through line that you just described, it's there so frequently, sure. some of our, our earliest moments of leadership and the values and commitments and for you standing up for, uh, for a young person who was, you know, having a bad experience and at the cost of your own social capital, even back then, which, uh, social capital when you're in middle school might be just about the might be the only capital that matters, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the only currency. But you were willing to trade that for for your values. I love that. Uh, certainly, I would definitely classify that as an act of leadership. All right. Well, let's get into our topic today, which is talking about Gen Z or uh, the. So let's define terms here when when we're talking about this generation that's emerging and that the research that we're going to be investigating is all about. Who are we talking about? Well, at Springtide, we, um, the research institute that I run, our focus is on 13 to 25 year olds. And it, it, as Gen Z gets older, we're going to stay right in this age range. And that's for all intents and purposes right now, that's about where Gen Z is. So we're mostly talking about people um, who were born 1997, 98. Um, so the, in other words, like the, the, very, the young, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry, the oldest of Gen Z is just, they're your youngest workers now. Like they're the ones who have just graduated college or trade school um, and, you know, or maybe just out of high school with a few years of work experience. And they're just getting into sort of what you might call a career, <laughs> even though I don't know what I'm not even sure what career means anymore, but <laughs> you get the idea. Well, and that's that's definitely one of the, the elements of the research. But so, you know, it's interesting. And I have a, obviously a personal connection. Uh, I've got a 16 year old, I have a 26 year old. Uh, and a 30 year old. And so, you know, one smack in the middle of that age range, yeah. one just outside of it in that, that hybrid kind of gray mm -hmm. area, and then somebody a little bit older. And, um, and so watching all of these things transpire and seeing, um, the, the values and some of the, the, uh, aspirations and, and needs that you describe in your research lived out in all of their different experiences. It's, it is fascinating and such an opportunity for us as leaders. So, you know, in the introduction to, uh, I think it was the work slash life. You say that this generation is more diverse ethnically and racially and on track to be better educated than any previous uh, generation. Mm -hmm. And as you just mentioned, they're not going to stay in one career. They're likely to change jobs, even industries nearly a dozen times in their working life. That's a challenge for leaders who may not be acclimated to that. Yeah, it was, in fact, writing work life and, and talking to my dad about it. Uh, my, my parents were McDonald's franchise owners when I was growing up. Um, and so all the dinner table conversations were literally about, I mean, we were doing work at life. I mean, they office out of the house and, you know, it was, it was talking about management stuff from very young age. And my, I was sharing with my dad some of this stuff from, from work life and, and what young folks are looking for and, and what their realities are like. 
And at one point he's like, man, I'm so glad I'm not in that field anymore. <laughs> and what he's expressing is, I think the, the same thing that you just brought up, which is like, you know, we used to, when we use our past experiences to help us navigate new situations, um, that works to a certain extent, unless the new situation is so dramatically different than what the, you know, our past has been like. And, and then, and then those tools just don't become very useful anymore. They're not bad tools. They're just not, uh, you know, they, they just, they have less utility. And I think, and that's what he's expressing. He's like the, the things that I did as a manager, um, would not be super effective anymore. Yeah. Um, because the, the realities are, in fact, somebody, I was on a podcast actually a few weeks ago and somebody said, you know, they're going to have like, I don't know, three, four, a dozen different careers. I'm like, they might have a dozen at the same time, <laughs> you know, as they have side gigs and, you know, real jobs and, you know, they're getting education at the same time, et cetera. I mean, they've, they've got a lot going on. It's a diff different world, you know, it's uh, and that's not the, what your dad just expressed in, in that you related. Uh, I have heard that from so many different leaders and managers, uh, in different capacities. Yeah. I was just, uh, I was at an airport a couple of weeks ago and the table next to me, um, I was waiting to catch a plane and the table next to me, uh, they were talking about young people and, and they made the comment about that, that you just referenced about the job shifting and, you know, two or three years and I'm on to the next thing. And, and it was interesting because, and this was, if I had to guess a retired person or somebody nearing retirement. And she said, you know, it's easy to look at that and go, oh, can't they stick to anything? She said, but that might be a really good way to do it. I I'm almost jealous. <laughs> you know, wish, wish I had had that freedom and flexibility and opportunity to learn. And uh, I thought, well, what a, what a great perspective she had. Sure. What does all that mean as, as we're, you know, what factors in, let's just start, this is our entryway and then we can, we can talk from there, but what does all this mean for, this generation that's entering the workplace in terms of what they need, what they value, start at the 50,000 foot level and we can dive in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the clearest thing that it, it, it means and it points to what their first need is, um, is that there are no guides, there are no blueprints for this. Um, you know, the, if the, you know, not that you can't learn things on TikTok. that's, you know, there's a whole hashtag about TikTok university. But but if your if your mentors in life are people who are also trying to figure out the same thing at the same time as you, that's not great typically. Um, and and so even though you know you may not understand the realities of a 20, 21, 22 year old, making a real attempt to understand and listen is going to go a long way because they're, they're not they're not like uh, you know when I took the when I took the the. U.S. military standardized exam in a middle school or high school that told me I needed to be a garbage collector or whatever <laughs> it was like my, my fate in life. Um, Did it really? They, yeah, that was the thing. Um, you know, there are not even those kind of prescriptive pathways for careers left. And, and in part, that's because, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like a lot of a lot of millennials and Gen Z have looked at the available options to them and said, no, thank you. But also, I mean, you know, on the flip side of that, it it as productivity increased over the last few decades, real wages until very recently were pretty stagnant in terms of purchasing power. So it's not like industries are doing all that much to reassure folks like you should have one career and stay here because we'll take care of you. And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a push and a pull there, but the result is that there, there aren't really good models for this. Um, and, and that, that speaks to, I think one of the very first things that leaders can do to meet the needs of this generation and really start to engage to retain um, and attract is that 
you position yourself as, as a leader and not as somebody who necessarily has all the answers, but somebody who's willing to walk alongside and help them figure it out. Um, and that's, it's just a, it's a thing that we, I think in previous generations could assume that they would have gotten from their, you know, career counselors or from their parents or from their professors or coaches or what have you. Well, increasingly those relationships don't exist anymore. And even when they do, those people don't have any answers either. And so that's a, it's a really important place for employers to be able to walk, you know, to step into the life of a new employee that way. There is such opportunity there. And it's one of those, it's the both end of it to me, as I am going through your work is what strikes me is that, as you said, so many unknowns and we don't know how all this plays out, just like we didn't know how all the pandemic was going to play out and, you know, sure. just all these, all these different areas. And, and as a leader, and, and we talk about it constantly on this show is that you're not going to have all the answers. You can't have all the answers, but doggone it, you can ask some good questions and bring people together and, yeah. and be that glue. So I, I'm curious when you look at how Gen Z is looking at the workplace, you mentioned that um, they may not have been able to assume that those leaders, those mentors are going to be there. What does Gen Z see when they look at the workplace today to the extent they're even thinking about it? <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, I mean, it, one of the biggest and most interesting things that's that's really a shift um, in part, like sort of uh, accelerated by the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic is a catalyst for this, even though the first with millennials, but then sort of like really a thread even running through Gen Z before the pandemic is this notion that their sense of purpose on earth is going to be located uh, simultaneously with the work that they do. And, and that is a, that's a fascinating shift. I mean, that sort of like center of meaning used to be really in previous generations centered in sort of official meaning-making institutions, you know, like churches, mosques, synagogues, of course. Um, but then also the, the sort of service sector. So maybe you would do some work in your career for a while and then you'd retire and go to work for a nonprofit or, you know, while you're doing your career, also going to be doing some volunteering or things like that. And maybe that's where you would really find your sort of a sense of calling for lack of a better term, um, or, or a connection to something bigger than yourself, whatever. And then occasionally through hobbies, but those institutional connections to those things, um, especially in, in religion, those have those have gone away um, and are, are at least are eroding significantly. And uh, even to the extent that they still exist, there's such massive distrust for institutions and for, and for people representing them that this generation is not really primed to see the, like any of the answers provided by those institutions as sufficient. I mean, this sort of like need to explore and do it not on their own or and not by themselves, but, but to do it with other people in a variety of locations often ends up then showing back up at the workplace. And when we ask them about this, what they say is like, I, you know, I need a job that I can go, I, I want to work at a career. I want to have a position where I can go back to my friends at the end of the day um, you know, at this metaphorical like cocktail party, right? And I can hold my head up high and say, this is the job that I do. This is a place I work for. This is what we stand for. This is how we're impacting the world. It's it's not this like, uh, and again, when I get back to the, like my dad saying like, holy cow, I'm really glad I don't do this anymore. Cause you know, like, how do you, how do you make that connect for every, for every position at every job? Uh, but increasingly that's what young people are asking of not either when we're in the workforce or with a lot of the young people that we studied, you know, for work life was folks who are preparing, you know, when we're talking about 13 to 25, we're obviously not asking the same questions, but at 14, 15, 16, they're having the same concerns as 21, 22, 23 year olds 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, in terms of what they're thinking, how they're thinking about work in a much different way. So that that role that any leader or manager can play of being a meaning maker of helping people cre- understand the context, the meaning, the purpose, and what they're doing is just vital. I think it is absolutely more critical now than ever. But this isn't news. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to your podcast. I mean, certainly in some of the consulting work that I used to do, we used to talk about this all the time. When you're building cultures, that you know, upper level executives. What is, what is the old statistic? They under communicate mission and vision by a factor of ten. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because I think like a lot of times we can get, like, we know what it is. We sat in that retreat room for a long weekend, you know, like, and, and hashed it out. And we worked with the consultants and really came up with the slogan that goes on the wall. And, and we talk about all, but like conveying that down to all, even to frontline level workers, we feel like we talked about it ad nauseum, right? right. But they don't. I mean, in fact, there's some, um, there's a study done years ago about, like, you know, about how much do frontline workers know mission and vision? And, and they were surveying what you would think would be the easiest, most automatic place. This is Disney, right? It's the, it's the most magical place on earth, right? Like everybody will know what this is. And, and like, you know, something, some astonishingly low number, like 30% of them was all that could say it accurately. Like over half were getting it wrong or didn't know it at all. Um, even in a company that you would think is super duper clear. And, mm. and it just goes to show that, we shouldn't assume those connections. And in the past, maybe, okay, look, you know, you were, you're hired to tear tickets off at the gate to get into this amusement park. Maybe you don't need to know, or like it's, maybe it's not super critical. Right. But now we've got workers demanding it and, and to understand you don't have to be curing cancer with every job, but, but that you and the company that you work for have some important role to play in the world is increasingly important for attracting talent, for retaining them. And, and I think really importantly, for getting them to turn into advocates of your organization to other people that you might want to hire. Um, because it's, without that, they're probably just sort of hanging out until they're you know, looking for the next, the next place that can offer those things. All right, so we've got meaning and purpose. And, uh, and as you said, yes, we've, we talk about that on the show frequently. I'm curious because you know in this age group, most of the jobs that they're going to be starting with are often, depending on the organization, not the most meaning filled in an obvious way. You know, right. they tend to be more entry level uh, and, and depending on what the person's doing. I mean, obviously there are a, a wide range. We don't want to overgeneralize, but I'm curious if in the research you have found anything that stood out in terms of positive examples of the meaning that that people take from, young people take from their work that maybe we wouldn't think about or we should be thinking about. The, this is where it gets us in, you know, in work life, we talk about three things, mentorship, meaning, and growth. And we've touched on those first two a little bit. Um, this is both what, this is what young people told us that they were really looking for in helping get prepared for the workplace. But also once they were in the workplace, they were still looking for those three things, mentorship, meaning, and growth. And this gets us into that growth part. Cause you're right. Like most jobs at 22, 23, 24 years old, like these are not um, typically like your sort of organizational shifting. You're not in charge of strategy. Um, a lot of times what you're doing is some equivalent of pushing buttons. Sometimes literally what you're doing is pushing buttons. Um, and, and that's where we get to the growth part where, you know, understanding what is my pathway forward here as an, in this organization, not just for me, but what is this organization's pathway for? What are its hopes and dreams in terms of its impact on the world? And, and this is where all of that's, you know, I'm sure you've covered this on your show. I used to, uh, you know, we used to talk about this a lot. It, the best diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants will tell you like this is not a this is not like a siloed off part of your organization. 
the best DEI strategies are the ones that infuse your organization. I, this is one piece here where the growth part is like, how, you know, what kind of organization do I work for? Um, are these values that are consonant with my values? Is there a pathway forward, you know, where we are continuing to dig into these things more that I can grow here, that the organization can grow? Maybe I can push it, you know, in some key ways. I mean, there's also there's also key roles for, you know, frontline new employees to play in terms of being listened to and heard throughout the organization, of course. But that growth piece becomes really important. So it's not so much that right now, today, everything that I do needs to be filled with meaning. In fact, we found Gen Z to be... Um, you know, really uh, cognizant of that. Like they, they knew they were not walking into jobs where, you know, they were going to be handed the keys to the kingdom. But they they weren't really comfortable with walking into jobs and and being expected to make some sort of commitment to those positions or organizations when the organization wasn't being really upfront about how its values uh, and how its prospects for growth included their own prospects for self-fulfillment and, you know, personal growth as well. Yeah. We, you know, you're making me think of, we had a, uh, we had uh, an individual working for us uh, during college and uh, they went on, graduated, paid internship and was just talking with them. And uh, three or four months in, you know, uh, almost everyone in their cohort has left the organization. This is, this is a global organization, well-known global organization. Three months in, just about everybody, but this person has left and and he's contemplating it right and sure. one of the one of the reasons is i don't necessarily see anything here i would want to do doesn't align with my values they promised me a mentor it's been three months i haven't heard mm -hmm. anything about it um you know and it's and and yes there's work to do and it's fast-paced and, and all of those things and i i think this individual would be very happy with that in the context of the other things that you're just talking about. Sure. So we've got mentorship, meaning, and growth. And if we can provide those things, and it's, it strikes me every leader has it in their purview to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, if they're if they're really a leader and not just sort of following, like here's here's the nine step guide you get to being a middle manager, right? But at some point you have to like assimilate that into what you know about the world and how how you want to show up in that place. I mean, so we were, we were joking about my dad earlier, but I think he would have been, I think he would have done great in, in this environment. I mean, because he was, you know, good leaders are committed to figuring it out, right? You're not, you're not committed to, to doing the same thing all the time in exactly the same way. Good leaders are committed to figuring out solutions to problems. And the problem very simply that presents itself right now is, is how do you, how do you recruit, attract and retain a talented workforce when you know, some pretty big shifts have happened from generation to generation. And then we just have to design for that solution. And the, and the design for that solution involves, you know, some, some pretty unconventional things, um, some things that maybe people didn't, you know, necessarily think was going to be a part of their job, but they're clear. I mean, you can do them. Like everybody can listen. I mean, everybody can learn to listen. <laughs> um, but young, we often overlook listening as as a uh, as like a really key management trait. But, but when when you ask young people like what is the most important thing that a, an adult can do in your life, and they'll tell you like oh just they can listen to me, because they feel so often like they're dismissed um, mm -hmm. or being told what to do. And then here's this really fascinating thing, David. When you know we've we've alluded to this notion that young folks don't trust institutions or their leaders anymore. Um, and this is not just young people, it's across the board. There's data going back 50 years about this erosion of trust. Um, when we ask young people to rank institutions on a scale of one to 10, 
The only thing that gets above a five on trust is nonprofits. They get a 5.5. Everything else is like below the midpoint. And so even that's even 5.5 is not very good. And, and then what the, when we dug deeper into that research, what, what they told us was that, okay, so I don't trust those institutions, but I often trust the adults in them or, you know, my boss in them, the people I work with, but not if they come at me and, and are just telling me what to do all the time. Um, and, and here's why. It wasn't because they were bucking authority um, or because they didn't want to be controlled or anything like that. What they said was, when you tell me what to do first, um, when you're a professor or a teacher and you try to tell me what my career should look like, or when you're my boss and you try to you know, dictate every little thing that I'm doing without listening to understand who I am, then I think that you represent the best interests of that institution that I already don't trust. And so my guard is raised, I'm defensive, like I'm trying to figure out the angle here of like, how can I, you know, do this as much as I need to, but not any more than that. But they said that when you listen to, you know, and I feel like you understand who I am and that you understand what my goals are and care about me, then I'm much more likely to take direction from you because now I've sort of decoupled you from the institution that you work for. And, and then we see trust levels up into the 90th percentile, which is amazing. Like just, yeah. just some diligent, like dedicated listening um, can go a long ways towards undoing, you know, the sort of being behind the eight ball when you start automatically. Yeah, I so appreciate that, you know, and all the, and that's so consistent, like all of the trust research that Karen and I have, have been looking at over the last two years, uh, you see that, that factor of, do you have my best interest at heart? Mm -hmm. leverages everything. You may be the most credible leader and you may, I may be able to count on you to do what you say, but if I don't think you've got my best interest at heart, yeah, am I yeah. really going to trust you? And yeah. what I'm hearing you tell all of us is one of the most effective ways that we can do that is to start the conversation maybe with, yes, here's the vision, here's what we're trying to accomplish, but let's get their perspective. Let's listen and find out who this person in front of me is. Yeah, that's right. And it's not like, look, yeah, at some point, like, you know, you're the boss in the room, you know, you're going to, you're going to be the one ultimately making the decision about how people behave and act and do and whatnot at work and what the goals are, et cetera. But there are, there's more than one way to get to a goal. And, you know, you can, you can get there by taking into account as much as possible, the, the people in the room with you or by ignoring those things. And I, the, the evidence is just pretty clear that when, you know, when, when you ignore them increasingly, you're, you're starting further and further away from your goal. And you can cover a lot of, you can make up for a lot of that ground with Gen Z by making sure that, that you take the time to understand who they are and where they, where they want to be. I call it like, I think about it a lot as like, we, we keep using these tools that are developed for high trust environments, but we're using them now in a low trust world. And it's just because people have not sort of really wrapped their head around this, this has been slow and steady. This erosion of trust has been, it's like, you know, 40, 50 years of this at one or two percentage points a year. So it's not anything, it's not like there was a moment and we woke up and all of a sudden we're like, you know what? It turns out I don't trust the government anymore. And somebody else woke up the next day and was like, I don't trust my boss either. Like, like that's not how it worked. It's just, it's been this like chipping away at it um, over the course of a period of time. And so there hasn't been this, you know, in, in large, uh, for large places in, in the economy and other uh, institutions, there hasn't been this like call for, oh my gosh, we need low trust tools. This like, let's, you know, these high trust tools of like, let's present our stability and how long we've been here. And here's my fancy title. And, you know, here's the letters after my name, all these high trust tools that we used to use to convey authority. Um, those, 
aren't, we know they're not working as well as they used to, but we don't know what else to do because not everybody has really understood, I think, exactly how deep that erosion of trust has, uh, has spread and what the implications are. And so we keep showing up and saying like, look at how big our company is. And, you know, the 23 year old is like, yeah, I don't care. In fact, not only do I not care about that, it actually makes me distrust you more. And with, with so many good reasons, I mean, that's so funny. The, the, my mind is just blowing up with all the different examples of, so you've got the visual cues of, of trust and reliability that no longer signify those things. So plate glass or polished marble or yeah, wood panel, whatever offices. it is, right? Yeah, yeah. None of that, uh, if anything, it, it suggests maybe I shouldn't trust because there's an ulterior. Um, and then institutions that have proved untrustworthy um, repeatedly over time. And it, like the, that lack of trust exists for a reason too. Uh, you know, I'm, gosh, you're making me remember when my daughter uh, was in college and uh, there was a, a nonprofit leader who we both respected. I contributed money to their organization and then fall from grace. And it turns out he had been untruthful about some of the work they'd been doing. And, and the, the story was much more embellished than the reality. And, and she called me in tears. Is there no one I can trust? Mm. And then she paused other than you. And I went, oh, no, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> well, a lot of pressure, but do not a do not screw that up. Right. But yeah. B, you know, I think that's speaking for to, to what you're talking about and yeah. uh, and what the research is. And it also is a huge opportunity. I mean, it's an opportunity yes. for each of us, for every organization. If you truly can relationally build that trust and re and reliabilities and and best interest of the other and all of those elements in what you're doing you have a powerful attractive force for talent for retention and obviously productivity and and you know all the the, the business outcomes but what an opportunity yeah yeah it's a concept that i, I first started teaching this back when i was a professor and then and we were doing some consulting and have transferred over to springtime is this concept of relational authority that you know the it's, it's about combining your expertise, but not, you know, not, not just living in that land of expertise, but combining it with listening, integrity, transparency, and care that really to, you know, to have authority in the life of a young person, it's not going to be enough to come in and say, like, I wish it had been, you know, when I was a professor to come in and say, like, I have this title and here's my degrees, you know, and you, you'll get like short-term compliance, right? And you've seen sure. this, your audience has seen this, is if they will do what you say over a short period of time, if you have leverage over them. So like my students would do what I said for their grade, but look, I was after something much bigger, you know, than, than them getting good grades. I cared about them. I was after their hearts and minds. Like I, you know, I wanted them to flourish and be the best young people they can be. I'm sure your, your listeners want their employee, their employees to do more than just hit their numbers every quarter. Um, and, and for that to happen, it wasn't enough for me just to walk into the room with a degree on the wall and, you know, professor so-and-so at this university, it, it, they, they wouldn't do that last part. The, the hearts and mind winning didn't come until I sat and listened to them. That's the listening part, right? The integrity part where I, I would admit when I was wrong or if I'd made a mistake, um, I would be transparent with them by talking about the similarities in my life, but also recognizing the limitations of those. Like I was sure. a first generation college student, so I could connect with a lot of my students there, but also recognizing that my first gen experience as a white suburban upper middle class was not the same as a lot of the students that I was talking with mm -hmm. who were not coming from those backgrounds. Um, and then care. And, and, you know, what young people understand is that money is not the most valuable commodity that adults have. The most valuable commodity they have is time. 
And, and the way that they really understand care being expressed is when you spend time with them. So when I was able to do those things, listening, integrity, transparency, and care, then I got to do the expertise part where I was like, you know, we would sit down in my office. I'd ask them what they want to be when they grow up, or they would tell me what was going on in their life and they would actually listen to the advice that I gave. Uh, but it's a, it's a much more, you know, you can't just be their buddy. You can't come up with no expertise. We've all seen, you know, the Michael Scott approach to management is not one that anybody <laughs> would advocate for. No, you absolutely need the credibility too. Yeah. But if you just show up as the expert, you know, they're not, they'll listen again, you'll get that short-term compliance, but not that real influence that you're looking for. Absolutely. We're talking with Josh Packard, PhD, Executive Director of Springtide Research Institute. And we're talking about young people that age group 13 to 25, uh, some of whom are just entering the workforce and what that means for us as leaders, how we can lead effectively, and uh, obviously talking about human-centered leadership. And this is a, a massive place and a, and a huge opportunity for all of us. You know, and Josh, as you've been talking about listening, one of the things that occurs to me is that, so there's listening for the purpose of communicating that I care and that yeah. I am interested in your welfare, your success. There is also listening for the value that this generation has to contribute to our team, our leadership, our organization. Sure. What what did you find in, in your research? I know this is ongoing, but what are you finding in your research are the contributions that they can make today? Well, I think we can start it with the, from, you know, in that book that we did about meaning making. I mean, one of the things that really they're looking, you know, that that is organizations that are accountable to themselves, leaders who are accountable to themselves and others, as well as keeping them accountable are, are really critical. And so I think listening to find those points of, you know, where, where, you know, what is, what do they care about in terms of how can I report back to them the progress that we're making on such and such a front or, or the things that we're doing in these areas that they may not even know about. I mean, if they're new to this organization, they of course are not going to have, you know, knowledge of the organizational history and the things we've been trying, which can really matter. Um, in a, in, a, in a variety of ways. But that second one, which is about the second value that rose to the top was about um, inclusion. You know, the young people just saying like, I'm, I'm just not gonna work at a place that doesn't have inclusion among its highest values. And inclusion looks like a whole lot of different things. It's not, we're not just talking about race or diver, uh, ethnicity. Uh, we're talking about a variety of things, obviously. And maybe even too many different aspects for, you know, your average, manager to keep track of. And a lot of organizations don't have dedicated DEI units that you can just go to as a resource and, you know, ask to sit in or audit your, you know, your, your, um, your division or your unit. And so we can start by, we can start listening to young people to find out, like, how do you think we're doing here? Like, what are, what are some identities and some things that, that, have, that come up for you that you don't see represented that you think that we could either message to better, that we could make products for better, that we could serve better, um, through our company or that we could even internally, you know, we could make sure that the people in our workforce that have those identities feel more comfortable and, and like, you know, they're, they're seen and noticed, um, in this company. So I think both for internal, like how can we improve our own operations, but also for external, like, are we showing up well for those group, for that group of people? Like when, you know, when you talk to your friends, you know, and when you were deciding to apply for a job here, what are the, you know, how, how do people feel about us? Um, because there's, there's, there's more out there than we can keep track of as any one person. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm curious when you, you mentioned the first value of accountability that that came up uh, huge, which I think, you know, that one is not what 
I don't imagine most managers are saying, oh yeah, young people are coming in here with accountability at the top of their head. You know, like that, that's yeah. not what people would assume, but yeah. there's an approach to accountability that you unpack in and that you walk us through in the, in the book that I think is, uh, is helpful. And again, the, the book is uh, Meaning Making, Eight Values That Drive America's Newest Generations. Uh, and I'd encourage you to pick it up. I think it's, uh, yeah, the research is phenomenal and Josh and his team do a fantastic job of making research and the data absolutely relatable and something you can do something with. So uh, when you're talking about accountability and you gave us a quick example, it's like, okay, so one example is, are we consistently communicating what's happening, where we're going, what's what's going on with the, the progress we're trying to make? That's one element. What are some other, what else does accountability look like in terms of that as a value for this young generation? Well, a big part of it is, you know, not only obviously doing what, what it is that you say you're gonna do, but then showing up when, when it doesn't go your way, when it just didn't work out the way that you thought it was going to, when you were wrong about an assumption. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. I, one of the fascinating things about, you know, about this generation is that they're, they're very quick to be able to decouple those things about who you are as a person from the kinds of things that you've been doing, as long as you're willing to own it. Mm -hmm. Right. So when, when you don't, when you don't do that work, when you don't say like, oh, this is what I thought was going to happen. It didn't turn out that way. That's why we're in this situation. And here's what we're going to hope to do about it. I mean, basic management stuff, right? If you don't do that, well, then the default is that's who you are. And so that mistake that you made or that thing that didn't work out the way that you wanted it to for reasons that might not have even been under your control, those start getting attributed to you as a person. And that's a really bad place to be. And, and this is true, you know, the younger we get, the harder this is. I mean, this is just this is not because of anything particular to this generation, but that's it's just how human development works. Brains don't stop completely um, developing until you're in your early 20s. Um, and so it's, it gets harder. At younger ages, teenagers tend to think in more black and whites. Um, nuance is harder. Um, and so that's, that's always going to be more of a struggle at younger ages. But, but even for older, you know, older folks, as we get into our mid late twenties, if you're not doing the job to sort of explain what your logic and rationale was and, and say like, ah, shoot, that was, you know, that either didn't work out and it was my fault or it didn't work out. We don't know why, but we're going to try and figure it out. Like whatever that is, if you're not closing that communications gap, then all of that just gets attributed back to who you are intrinsically. And the reason why that matters so much is, is because I can I can imagine some of your audience sitting there thinking like, great, well, if that's what's happening with the losses and I get that with the wins too, I believe enough in myself that you know I'm gonna win a whole lot more than I lose and they're gonna start attributing more positive things. But the reason why it matters is actually one step beyond that, which is that every time they attribute something to you and not to a process, what it does is it puts you in a different category from them. And it makes you intrinsically a part of their out group meaning that like you are a part of a different group over there and we are a part of this group over here and communication between in groups and out groups does not go particularly well. No, it's a, it it's where stereotypes come from. It's where a lot of strife and division comes from. And so this, this notion of being accountable, it, it also means being in community. And it doesn't mean being equals, like nobody's suggesting that like you can have as a part of your in group, people who are not on the same hierarchical level as you. Um, but it's really critical that we don't start seeing each other as fundamentally different if we're going to work together in really productive ways. And, you know, and that is, that's such a huge notion and a big concept, but the solution of take accountability, take responsibility, own your stuff, own the things that 
don't go the way that you hoped and own what process led you there and, and the learning then and, and be even visible with the learning from that and including people in that. You know, I, I always say, you know, as a leader, and, and this is true for thing for every generation, right? You screw up, own it. They already know it went wrong. <laughs> it's not like you're hiding anything and you're giving them permission to be human and learn and grow as well. You know, and it demonstrates your strength and credibility again uh, and your trustworthiness. I know when we don't, I mean, all those things fall apart. Yeah. We've even at Springtide, we even institutionalize this. So as part of our weekly team meetings, we, we have kudos where we celebrate the things that, you know, you, you want to give praise to somebody who did something that was really important for you uh, or that you thought went really well, you get a chance to do that. But then we also do learning lessons and the learning lessons are things that, you know, consistently across the board, it was like, oh, I never knew this before. And nobody feels stupid for saying they didn't know it. It's just because we've made it just a part of the routine or like, uh, I really thought we were going to, you know, this thing was going to turn out with this way. Like we spent all this money on Google AdWords. Look, it's just not working. And, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out if it's because we don't know how to run those correctly or if it's because that's not our right audience. But it's, again, it's in this process of growth, right? It's 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 us trying to live into the research that we found. And it, it, keeps, it keeps everybody with doors open a little bit. Oh, I love that so much that you get more of what you celebrate and encourage. So if we're celebrating yeah. learning, we'll get more learning. But if not knowing something is bad, then I'm I'm actually punishing the risk of learning. I mean, that's a, right. it's 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 so obvious when you say it that way. But I'm thinking of practical takeaways from the show today, and we've got listening, we've got asking those questions, and getting to know the the person as a human being, and and so that creating the commonality. We've got taking responsibility, owning things when they go wrong, and then learning lessons. I mean, what an easy thing that every single person listening to the show right now you can do, yeah, and implement that into your your workflow, your work plan. Uh, so much, so much value here. We've got some more values, some more things I want to un unfold here. But uh, Josh, where can we connect with you? Maybe get a hold of this book, or download the reports, or uh, tap into this wealth of information that you have for us. Yeah, thanks for asking. We're at springtideresearch.org, and you can see everything that that we do there. I mean, we state very clearly as our mission that uh, we want to make sure that you know, young people don't have to answer life's biggest questions alone. And so we try and make sure that the adults who care about them can care better. And, and we ask, uh, you know, some questions along those lines. So, so a lot of that stuff is going to veer into things like religion and spirituality, but then as Gen Z does more meaning making at work, um, uh, as it, it transgresses over into, you know, mental health issues, that's a big series that we're in right now. We also have a variety of research put out in, in those areas as well. All right. Well, I encourage you to get a hold of uh, of these reports and and connect with uh, Josh over there. Josh, you're also on LinkedIn, yeah? Oh, yeah. LinkedIn and on Twitter at Dr. Josh Packard, Dr. Josh Packard. Perfect. Well, in Meaning Making, Eight Values That, that Drive America's Newest Generations, and and, uh, and that's available, that, that book is available uh, on Amazon or on our Amazon website. Or yeah. Yeah. And uh, so encourage you to get a hold of that one too, because I found that the, the, and you basically, the book is very straightforward. It outlines, here is what this generation values, accountability, inclusivity, you've mentioned authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us about authenticity. I, I think that that is one that still to this day, leaders struggle with, you know, like, am I supposed to just barf up everything? Like, you know, <laughs> I've got work to do. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, isn't authenticity a weird word because it feels like every generation cares about authenticity. I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, I think this is what I, I have this like flash of, of it being in one of the captions for the history textbook that I read about Woodstock in the 1960s. That part of the rebellion was about young people wanted to be authentic, right? Authentic. Uh, yeah. 
the but it means something a little bit different to every generation. And so it's this, it's this odd thing where it feels like we can be talking about the same thing, but talking past each other. Um, and, and so for a lot of Gen Z, what authenticity means is, is not so much that um, you are that everything you say is strictly true, that like I'm, you know, which, which I think maybe is what it meant a little bit in years past, where like, I'm not gonna tell you a lie, right? But I'm also not gonna share with you like some of the boundaries of who I am. Like there's a real strict work-life divide. Um, and, and in ways that I think is gonna, are gonna make a lot of leaders feel uncomfortable, Gen Z is just not, they're not having it. I mean, they'll, they'll if, if you're gonna make a really strict work-life division, they're okay with that but you have to tell them why, if you want them to be okay with it. Um, the, because again, without the communication, without the rationale, they, they just assume that, you know, you're starting behind the eight ball of, on the distrust side, right? Not a high trust environment, it's a low trust environment. And so when you don't take that time to explain like, oh, look, it's not that, it's not that I don't like you, it's that I, it really, things don't go well when we go out and have drinks together, you know, with all of my frontline employees. I'm happy for you all to do it, but as a leader, it's just not a place or a situation I can be in. Here's what's happened in the past, right? If you don't take the time to do that, they just think that, you know, you don't care about them. You don't want to take the time to get to know them. You don't offer an alternative, like maybe we could have coffee one-on-one -on -one or whatever that is. That's where the authenticity part comes in. You've got to find some ways, not, not necessarily to share parts of yourself that you don't want to share uh, or parts of your journey that you don't want to share but you have to be able to share your rationale for that. On their side, what they're looking for in terms of authenticity is that they, they want places where they can bring their whole selves to work. I mean, this is just really, I think everybody will understand this immediately. They, they, they're not wanting to show up at places where they have to hide pieces of their identity, um, you know, parts of who they are. Uh, you know, this is, this is sort of a non-starter for them in many ways. All right. You have been a fount of information. Uh, there's just, and there's so much more we could dive into. As we are getting close to the end here, Josh, I want to ask you in all of this research, is there something that surprised you? Something that made you, that you just weren't expecting? Well, we didn't really know what to make about Gen Z in terms of, you know, every generation sort of gets these monikers, like Gen, Gen X were slackers, right? Um, hey, wait a minute. Think, You're talking to me. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, millennials, you know, people would call them entitled sometimes or, or, or that they were sort of deconstructing everything, wanted to tear everything down, right? And it's the, the jury's still out with Gen Z, but I, what we've been seeing is this real response to the pandemic and this distrust toward building up new things. I mean, I, I really would if I had to pick a word right now, I would call them constructors. And that's, that's a double-edged sword, right? It's a, it means like, and on the one hand, that's very energizing. That's really great. Like they're not just here to burn it all down. Um, and at the same time, if they don't see you providing the solutions, the, the building the things that need to be built to meet their needs and their friends' needs, then they just won't engage with you. They'll go out and build it themselves. Like you are no longer required for them. And, and that's so like, that's the other side of that sword, right? Uh, and so I'm not sure if it's a good or a bad thing, but it, it has been the surprising thing. It's just the number of solutions that they're already building, sometimes in shadow of their schools and their bosses and their religious institutions and their homes, sometimes in parallel, um, occasionally in concert with, but always lurking there somewhere is this desire to build things um, that meet their needs. 
And that's the, 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 the internet and all of the technology that's available <laughs> yeah. today has certainly leveraged. And, oh and man, we can go that. into it. They've got three more podcasts about that, but yes, I mean, <laughs> even like they have, they have literally have new tools at their disposal. Um, tools that, they know how to use that you might not have even heard of. <laughs> exactly. You know, like how, you know, how many of you, how many of your audience knows what a DAO is and, and like, you know, what this sort of distributed leadership model portends for the future of management, but a lot, a lot of Gen Z knows what it is. Sounds like a, that's definitely a future episode. I love it. <laughs> well, right now, as we're looking at that ability, that, that two-sided coin of, of constructive, yeah. of construction, of being able and willing to build and doesn't need you and I'll build it myself if that's what it takes and in the shadow. But what, again, what an opportunity if as leaders, we can provide the mentorship meaning and growth Absolutely. and help bring that to our team, to our organization, uh, tremendous opportunity. Yeah, tremendous. that is exactly, that is exactly how we feel about it too. This just does not seem, um, you know, maybe that's just my nature, but I, I just am not doom and gloom here. I mean, it's, I, I really, it's a transition for sure you know, moving the locus of authority and control away from big, trusted, stable institutions to something else is, uh, is, is going to be interesting. But one thing remains, which is that institutions are incredibly vital and necessary for coordinated, important human activity. And so like, we're hopeful, but also like new management styles, new organizational styles, like these need to come along because, you know, yeah, they can, you know, People can build things more easily on their own now than ever, but can they build long-lasting, really influential, stable things? I'm not. I'm not so sure we've answered that question. They really need you. Absolutely, and there is a role for you to play as a leader in all of that, uh, building that trust one relationship at a time. And there is a huge role for Gen Z to play in our teams and our organizations with all that they've got to contribute. Josh, thank you so much for being a guest today on the show. Really appreciate your wisdom and your taking the time. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Well, for our leaders, I hope that you've got, I know you have, I've gotten some, I've gotten some elements that I want to incorporate in some of my leadership walking out of this show. Uh, so I hope that you choose one of those, whether it's the uh, leadership lessons, whether it's the listening, the learning uh, opportunities, whatever it is, be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.